Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to Paul Monies, who covers government for Oklahoma Watch. As part of last week's Sunshine Week stories on government transparency, Paul looked at a persistent problem with the state's Open Records Act, the lack of defined time limits for responses by state and local government. Paul, what prompted you to take a look at this particular part of the Open Records Act? Well, this, this has been um, an issue for me as a requester for quite a while, but what really prompted the story was um, a couple of weeks ago, the state's attorney general, uh, John O'Connor, joined 13 other attorneys general uh, and suing the Biden administration under the Federal Freedom of Information Act. And so how does the state's guidance on time limits for responses differ from those in the federal law, the Freedom of Information Act? Well, there's a big difference because Oklahoma's standard is prompt and reasonable, uh, which obviously means different things to different people depending on which side of the issue you're on. Um, the federal uh, guidance, there's several timelines, but the main one is the, the agency uh, you're requesting records from has to respond within 21 days in some way. It doesn't mean give the records up. And then there's an extra kind of 10-day business day kind of window too. So that's what the attorney general did in his lawsuit. He used the federal uh, timelines to sue after not getting records from the Biden administration. Now, your story mentioned that there's plenty of frustration from both the requesters of public records and the government officials charged with finding and providing those records. How did it get so bad? Well, when the the Open Records Act was was, um, enacted in 1985, that was kind of the compromise they made at the time, this prompt and reasonable standard. And and that that was kind of made at the time to basically give some some grace on both sides of the issue. Like, you know, um, there's no defined time limit. So if there was, if there had been a 20-day time limit, pretty much everything would have lasted at least 20 days for request. And so that was kind of put in as a compromise. But over time, uh, either lack of resources or lack of attention uh, to the the law by uh, government agencies themselves um, has kind of eroded that kind of good feeling of prompt and reasonableness. And, um, you know, some requesters over time have, have kind of seen that just they get ignored sometimes, unfortunately, uh, unless they actually finally file a lawsuit, which costs money. Well, how do other states handle uh, response times? Yeah, several states have the defined limits, um, and they also, you know, they, they, they range from, you know, a response within three to five business days to seven to three weeks. I mean, it's really kind of the, the gamut across the states. Um, also, some states kind of do a dual track in terms of the complexity of the request. Uh, so, you know, simple grabbing a document or a budget document after a meeting um, would be one kind of track, and then more complex ones of like emails over a period of time to pull from a system would, would be another track. And that's that's something that we've looked at here in Oklahoma, but nothing's been enacted, of course. And has there been any legislation proposed this year that would have uh, changed that that standard? Yes, there was one bill by State Senator Julia Kurt uh, of Oklahoma City. She um, had a bill that basically said agencies should respond within five business days to any request. Um, but unfortunately, that bill did not get a, a hearing out of committee um, and is kind of basically dormant right now in the legislature. Did did her bill uh, require the responder to produce the records within five days? No, it was just a response within five days or a reason why they couldn't get with, get it within that time limit. 
Now, your story had some extreme examples of very long waits for records, you know, some two years or more after they were requested. What happened in those instances? Well, we highlighted a couple of cases, uh, one with the former Attorney General Scott Pruitt, which was several years ago. Um, his office had received a request in 2015 from a um, kind of watchdog group up in Wisconsin looking for emails from his office to energy companies and energy trade associations. Um, they basically uh, responded and then said nothing for two years. And so they took him to court. And in fact, his office at the time was rebuked by Oklahoma County District Judge saying, you can't do two years and not say anything to a requester. Um, so they, they basically ordered him to give up the records uh, at that time. And then we also highlighted a case um, of Nick Brooke, who is an Oklahoma City resident, who we talked to last year for Sunshine Week. He had um, filed in the early days of the pandemic in 2020 to get some records from the health department. And he went to court soon afterwards and is still litigating with the state health department on that issue right now. Uh, what solutions are being proposed to help address some of those long waits for public records? Well, there's lots of ideas out there. We talked um, to Mark Thomas, who's the executive vice president of the Oklahoma Press Association. Um, obviously, he's seen this issue firsthand at the Capitol, talking to lawmakers, talking to people who are having problems with the law uh, from the public side, too. Um, he, he is planning on kind of uh, convening a, a series of groups this summer and fall to kind of take a wholesale look at the process by which we do this, um, he said it's going to be pretty messy, uh, involve all kinds of groups from, from all sides of government, the public, watchdog groups, transparency groups, um, and try and get a better process in place because he just says there's just a ton of frustration right now. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's work on the topic of government transparency and his investigative work on other topics at OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerability for Oklahoma Watch, and few were more vulnerable to COVID-19 than nursing home residents. While reporting on the state health department's plan to change the way it collects and publishes COVID nursing home data, Whitney found 537 resident and staff deaths were missing from state reports. Whitney, how did you discover that the state total was short? Well, the state had stopped collecting its own data and started reporting data from the federal agency that oversees those nursing homes. And so when I pulled the federal data to see what they had been collecting, I knew immediately there was a big discrepancy just by looking at that total number. It turned out that the state had been missing about 512 nursing home resident deaths and about 25 staff deaths from their reports. Well, how did the state miss so many deaths? So state officials said they knew that their numbers were inaccurate um, because they're relying on individuals and families to report that information. So anytime a positive COVID test was reported to the state health department, they had investigators who literally called every single person on those forms to ask questions about their positivity, for instance, whether they live in a high-risk setting like a nursing home. So if that person doesn't answer the phone or didn't want to talk to them, uh, didn't return a call, then they were just left out of the data completely. So what's the fallout from putting out such uh, low, inaccurate numbers? 
Well, a lot of folks were relying on state data to make decisions about um, what they should and shouldn't be doing during COVID. So data was being used, for instance, by the governor and by mayors to make decisions about uh, mask mandates and other COVID precautions. Families who have loved ones in these facilities relied on that data to decide whether or not they could visit a nursing home. Or before the nursing homes reopened, you know, they were locked down for so long during COVID, they relied on that information to know what was happening to the facility that their loved one was in. A lot of times staff were so busy um, just trying to keep up with outbreaks and, and literally keeping people alive that they didn't have enough time to answer the phone every time a family member called to ask how things were going. Now, you found those missing cases by looking at federal data. Is that data any more reliable than the state data? So the federal agency that regulates nursing homes, it's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They actually require nursing homes to report their COVID cases and deaths on a weekly basis. They're also tracking things like vaccinations by facility and whether or not they have a staff shortage since COVID. There's a lot of information being collected and nursing homes aren't that are not reporting face penalties that could affect their federal funding. So they definitely have an incentive to report accurate information to this agency. That's still a huge task. Are there any gaps in the in the federal data? Absolutely. This kind of reporting is completely new to every agency and every nursing home that's having to report. I mean, you know, COVID was unprecedented and this kind of reporting is as well. Um, so there are still many challenges. For instance, there's a retired farmer who lived at Beatles Nursing Home in Alva. He died in February after having COVID for the second time, and he had been out of quarantine for about two weeks before he died. So the nursing home did not report his death as a COVID death because he had tested negative for COVID before he passed away. But the nursing home administrator said he saw his birth certificate last week, and that showed I'm sorry, his death certificate last week. And that showed that COVID was the cause of death. So now he has to go back and change that information. But a lot of administrators don't see those death certificates, so they may never know that a death was misreported. So is the the federal database tracking every long-term care facility in the state? No, the federal database is only tracking nursing homes. So nursing homes make up Uh, about 300 of our facilities here in the state, but we have 660 total. So that includes things like um, assisted living facilities, retirement communities, veteran centers, which had some of the state's worst outbreaks during COVID. So those facilities are not being captured by federal data. And the state is saying that they're no longer tracking individual cases in those facilities either. So that means Oklahoma will never have information on those facilities going forward. We're two years into the pandemic this month. What's been the toll on nursing homes so far? So nursing homes are reporting 17,346 COVID infections since March of 2020. And we know at least 2,375 residents and 47 staff have died in those facilities. You know, we've talked a lot about numbers and data because, uh, you know, we're Oklahoma Watch and we love data. Uh, but what's what's really the takeaway from all that? 
Well, the takeaway is that Oklahomans never really had a full and accurate picture of COVID's toll on our long-term care residents and staff. And now that the state is easing up on its data collection, we're never going to know how many people were lost to the pandemic across these facilities. And it sounds from what you found as though um, it's going to be underreported no matter how we look at it. Absolutely. Um, you might have heard earlier when I was um, rattling off the, the total numbers, I said at least this many residents. And that's because, again, even the federal agency is not going to get this 100% accurate because nursing homes themselves have a lot of challenges in reporting these deaths. So it's really impossible to get uh, an absolute 100% accurate count of this, but certainly the federal data seems to be a lot more accurate so far than what we were getting from the state. Great. Thanks, Whitney. Uh, We're talking to reporter Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerability for Oklahoma Watch. You can read her stories about uh, how COVID has affected nursing homes in Oklahoma and all her other investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to Rebecca Nahara, who covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. State Senator George Young, an Oklahoma City Democrat, has tried to pass legislation that would create a statewide commission on race and equality. He's tried to do that multiple times, but it has yet to gain any traction. Rebecca, talk to Senator Young about what that commission would look like and why he and others think the state needs one. Rebecca, could you explain what the Commission on Race and Equality is? Yeah, so um, most recently it was proposed with Senate Bill 1204. Um, The commission would be made up of 30 members. Some would be appointed by the governor, some by the um, Senate pro temp, uh, Speaker of House of Representatives, and the uh, Legislative Black Caucus. And what this commission would do is meet once a month or once every other month to allow Oklahomans to come forward with any issues or complaints they have when it comes to race inequality. Uh, But it'll also act as an advisory board when it comes to these issues, and it'll monitor legislation to make sure nothing is being passed that could be discriminatory toward any specific race. It'll also hold meetings and seminars that support its mission. Okay, so why do Senator Young and and others uh, feel the state needs something like that? So Young has received complaints from constituents when it comes to, you know, not only things like law enforcement and criminal justice, but... um, other state agencies like DHS, um, the Department of Human Services, uh, where people have felt they've been treated differently based on their race. Um, Last fall, I actually attended a Senate appropriations meeting where Young had proposed a commission, and he had had three people give presentations to support the argument for one. Um, The first one was a doctor. She actually attended by Zoom. Um, I think she delivered a baby before or right after, so she couldn't be there in person. But one of the main things she talked about were medical and health disparities among the black community and how um, black women experience more complications when it comes to childbirth here in Oklahoma and have a higher maternal death rate. Um, Another speaker was a teacher who talked about how different opportunity levels and um, educational levels vary from school to school. So it provides um, different opportunities for students who, you know, move on from there. And then another person talked about Oklahoma's racial wealth gap and economic disparities. And then all of these were backed up with data to support their arguments. 
So what are the obstacles that keep those bills from going forward? Um, well, when I attended that meeting, I talked to Young, and he had actually told me about how he proposed it um, multiple times. Um, but this time around, you know, it just didn't receive a hearing. Um, he said he thinks the committee chairs don't really seem pressed to add it to the docket. Um, he first proposed this legislation after George Floyd's murder in 2020. And uh, he feels like others may see bills talking about race may be too controversial. Um, something he did bring up to me, though, was the Holocaust education bill that you know was uh, in the news these last few weeks. And obviously that's something that had a heavy impact on people. Um, but he said something along the lines of if we can pass legislation related to something that happened decades ago and had an effect on people, one would think we could pass legislation on issues that affect people to this day. But people just seem to act like there aren't race issues here in Oklahoma. So how would it work? How would people voice their complaints to the commission? So as I mentioned, uh, the meetings would be held once a month or once every other month. Uh, people could attend in person to voice their complaints, um, or they could submit a written report. And then the committee could also call those people back to, um, you know, give their account before the board. Um, and then if the commission sees that it's something to be investigated, they'll do so. And then if it ends up being a policy issue, um, lawmakers are the ones who created the board. So it kind of serves, you know, that issue on a plate for them to take a look into. How about other states? Do they Are there any similar commissions out there? What do those look like? Yeah, so that's part of the reason why Young thought he could get some legislation passed in 2020, uh, because other states did adopt, um, you know, similar legislation after George Floyd was killed. Um, for example, Kansas's governor issued an executive order that created the Governor's Commission on Racial Equity and Justice, um, and their commission kind of functions the same way as Young's would. It's just made up of different people, so like a judge, chief of police, um, people from the DA's office. Um, and the woman I spoke to, the co-chair, she is actually the superintendent for Topeka Public Schools. So it's people from all different walks of life. And those commissions in other states, have they? Uh, do they have a track record? Have they made a difference? Yeah. So um, Dr. Anderson, the woman I talked to, um, she said that this board has held different listening sessions and educational webinars and has provided yearly reports. Um, the most recent report came back uh, came out in December. Um one of the biggest things that stood out to me was her saying it's difficult to have transformation and change if you don't have the conversation and everything doesn't have to become a law overnight. So the reports were the reports were divided into things on the legislative level, but also things on the local mun municipal level and things that you can do within your community. And an example of some legislation that has passed is um, a bill where the attorney general has to coordinate with law enforcement for training whenever it comes to missing and murdered indigenous people, which is something Oklahoma could look at given that we have a large indigenous population as well. We've been hearing from Rebecca Nahara, who covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. You can read her coverage of Senator Young's proposed legislation and all her other investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.